morning is found in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and starting with verse 42. And it says there this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider the story of the church, your church, in the book of Acts, we pray for a better understanding of who you are and who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're starting a new winter series, teaching series on the book of uh, Acts. Uh, Next week, we'll actually also be starting a companion afternoon uh, teaching series that we would love to have you at. Which will start at 2.30. In fact, you can go to avenhope.org online and get signed up for that because there are actually limited spots for that. So that's the companion uh, series, the afternoon discussion that will go along with that. You'll also be able to get caught up on any of the teachings at avenhope.org um, as well. Well, in a broken and divided a world like the one that we are in that's marked by partisanship and division, anger, and frustration, it's almost uh, shocking to read the story of the New Testament uh, church, the newborn uh, Christian uh, church. Uh, economic disparity, unbalanced division of power, and self-centered protectionism all contribute to disunity and frustration today. Uh, but in this short description we just read about the newborn uh, church, we see an entirely different uh, type of way of living together in a community that's unified, that cares about each other, that loves each other. And uh, so as we are uh, thoughtful about this group, uh, there are just some really important things that uh, jump out to us. First, we read again in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, that all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. And so uh, we have to ask ourselves the question, what leads to this kind of unity, or what led to this kind of unity in the newborn Christian church? Well, of course, uh, some of them had uh, just recently experienced the resurrection of Jesus for themselves. They had walked and talked with him, they had seen him crucified, and they had met him soon after his uh, resurrection. And so certainly that uh, profound interaction with Jesus had to have an incredibly unifying uh, uh, element for them, to bring them together. Then uh, others heard about this from them, whether it was from the preaching, preaching of Peter or the other apostles. So they heard from people who had seen Jesus uh, firsthand. And then others had experienced the coming of the God's Spirit, as described later in Acts, where uh, God gave the disciples the ability to speak in different languages. And so all of these elements had to have an incredible, uh, tangible impact on them and certainly would lead to their, uh, the unifying that, that we see described here, that they came together in a very particular and special way. Um, 
with this, this said, and as we're thinking about community in, in Acts and we're thinking about our own experience, uh, we also recognize that the, the unity that the newborn church had didn't last uh, forever. In fact, uh, we recognize that the church today has a lot of brokenness at various levels. So not only is the world broken, but the church itself uh, has disunity in it. But we see that this disunity started from almost the very beginning. So even though this description in Acts chapter 2 really gives a beautiful picture of the church, we recognize that pretty soon off, uh, the newborn church itself started to wrestle with issues of uh, division. And so we, we uh, read that soon after uh, the story of Acts chapter 2, we read in Acts chapter 5 that there was a disunity among the church in Acts chapter uh, 15. In fact, Acts chapter 6 verse 1, we read this. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of uh, food. So uh, it, soon after this picture of unity in the church, we have the first uh, inklings of, of some disunity. You read on in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1 that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the newborn church, the believers, that unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be uh, saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with them and debate with them. And so uh, they were appointed along with some of the other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this a question. And so even though we have a, a beautiful picture of the start of the church in Acts chapter 2, it wasn't too long before the, the church, the newborn church, started to see some disunity among itself. And again, we know that this has continued today. You don't have to look, look very far in uh, the, the church itself, whether it's the institutional church or even in communities like ours, smaller communities that are like ours, that we don't have the unity uh, like that Acts chapter 2 uh, newborn church. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is going on? What, what happens in the, in the church? What happens in the community that it loses that uh, sense of freshness? And, and what was unique about the, 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 the church right off when things got uh, started? And um, you start evaluating the story of Acts chapter 2, and you see that there are a couple of things that really jump out that are unique and distinguishing factors about them beyond just the experience that they had uh, knowing Jesus, many of them firsthand, or hearing about Jesus from them firsthand. First of all, we see um, in the church in Acts chapter 2 that they had economic equality. In fact, you could say that they were, they were uh, radically into economic equality. And it's really hard to get away from this fact as you continue to read the story, not just of the initial inklings of the, inklings of the church, but the church had a principle of economic equality that existed for some time. Again, Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, we read that all the believers were together and had everything in common. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone as they had need. If we continue down... Uh, as the narrative continues in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 we read this again all the believers were one in heart and mind no one claimed that any of his possessions was their own they shared everything that they had 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Uh, Joseph Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So as if the, the, the writer of this wanted to just emphasize that this wasn't just some theoretical thing that they all shared their possessions, uh, he goes into account to actually name a person who, who did this, that Joseph, this man that they called Barnabas, son of encouragement, he actually sold some property and he brought it into the church leaders, put it at their feet, and then they distributed it to anyone who had need. And so we see that one of the principles of the New Testament church, of the newborn church in its, in its infancy, was that they were radically for economic equality, that uh, it just wasn't going to be right to them if there were those among them who had everything that they needed and there was a, who were among them who didn't have enough. And so the Bible actually keeps reiterating this idea about the church, that they shared everything, that they were all together uh, using these very, very uh, intentional words, everyone, all together. And so, at some level, I think this makes sense, um, economic equality. I mean, if you are going to be in a relationship with someone else, whether as a group or as individuals, economic equality is important. I mean, I think about one of the, the, uh, the, the, the fundamental relationships between like a husband and a wife, a married couple. I mean, if, um, if one spouse uh, maybe makes more income, makes more money than the other, and, um, and, and, and spends more. You know, if you come home, I was because impressed by, I told him I was going to do this, but Kyle's in such a lovely suit today, Kyle. You look fantastic. So I was thinking, man, you know, to get a nice suit, something nice about that, so imagine you, you come home and you, you've got some new clothes, maybe it's not a suit, it's some, some clothes, get some, you know, new shopping at the Institute, the shopping institutions of, of New York, and you come home to your spouse, and you're like, look at all this great clothes. It's too bad you don't have enough money to buy some stuff for yourself. How's that going to go over? Economic equality is important in relationships. You want to have a healthy relationship. You both need to have access to the, 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 the similar resources. It's just not going to feel fair. It's not going to work. And so the, the church seemed to understand that. Like, if we're going to operate as a community where we, where we are all equals, then you got to have the same resources. And so they were radically for this, that they were going to share. If, if someone had the, 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 uh, the benefit that they... Uh, made more because their job field, were just that's how it worked out. And of course, we have this today. Some make more than, than others. That in the church context, they were going to make sure that everyone had equal opportunity. It's a radical idea, but it's a core uh, concept for the newborn uh, church. Another element that we see that jumps out as we think about this, uh, this newborn church is that they spent uh, quality time together. They spent quality time together. In verse uh, 46, we see that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. It's certainly one of the defining features of the 
early church, that they spent time together every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. This is challenging. I mean, quite frankly, both of these first attributes are really challenging. The idea of economic equality for everyone in the church, I mean, how, do you, how does that work? How do, you, how do you do that in a community uh, like ours? And by the way, we're thinking specifically about the community that is Advent Hope as we go through this process of, of journeying through Acts. I mean, of course, the church means many things. And sometimes when we talk about the church, we talk about the institution that is the church. But that can be so large and, and hard to get a handle around that... Uh, when we're investigating the story of Acts, it may be more helpful for us to think about our own community, this community, and yet we're still challenged. If we think about how do we create economic equality here among our little community that is having hope, that's challenging. I don't have the answer for that. Quality time together, an important element of the first century uh, church. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Listen, I know I've talked to enough of you that that uh, many of you are working long hours, 60, 70, 80. Not, uh, how many hours a week can you possibly work? Michael Brown, Michael knows. Michael, how many hours can you possibly work in one week? What's the most you've ever worked? Put you on the spot. A lot. I know Michael. I'm, I know there were some sleepless nights in Michael's his life. Now he's married. Now he goes home to his wife. But in single days, right? <laughs> in the single days. Um, Sorry for putting you on the spot, Michael. I know many of you, like Michael, work very long hours. And so the idea of spending quality time with your community can be uh, a little bit overwhelming. And yet we see that in the newborn church, this was an important element, that they spent quality time uh, together. And again, thinking about any relationship, if you want to have a relationship with someone or a group of people, if you're not spending quality time with them, you're not going to grow and your relationship probably is not going to be as healthy as it could be. And so economic equality, quality time together, these were foundational elements of the church in the first century. And so we, as we contemplate, how did they do it? How, did, how were they uh, unified? Certainly these are elements that are behind that. And finally we see... Uh, another attribute that was uh, very prevalent, that they had a radically uh, precise theological uh, purpose. So they believed in economic equality, and they practiced it. They spent quality time together, but they also had a radically precise theological purpose. They knew what they believed, and what, what they believed is what really tied them uh, together. Uh, the truth is that the New Testament church had one very clear and simple message. In chapter 4, verse 33, we read, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Listen, there are so many things that the church uh, could talk about, and, and, and quite frankly does talk about, uh, both today and in the first century. I mean, we think about uh, that we think we have a lot going on today, but believers in the first century had uh, tyrannical political leaders, uh, moral depravity on every cultural level. They had plagues and natural disasters and an incredible amount of other issues to deal with. But their theology, i.e. what they believed about God, was elegant and precise. Uh, and we think about some examples of them communicating what they believed. In um, 
in Acts chapter 8, uh, we read the story of one of the apostles, Philip, and he has this engagement with this um, man from Ethiopia. And the man was reading from the book of Isaiah, and Philip hear, overhears him a reading and initiates a conversation. And uh, the conversation ends with, with this. Then Philip began with a very passage of scripture that this man was reading, and he told him the good news about what Jesus had done. Because they had a razor focus on their theological purpose. Their theological purpose was about communicating what Jesus has done, that he had lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he ascended, and that because of that, we have power in the Holy Spirit. This was the clear and concise and elegant message of the disciples time after time after time. You continue on to the story of the conversion of Saul, who became the great, became the great apostle Paul, but he was, a, he was a, the mastermind of like demise of the early church. So he has this conversion experience, and we read in Acts chapter 9 that after taking some food, he re regained his strength, and he spent several days with the disciples in D Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Son of God. Very precise was the message. Jesus is the Son of God, and he's come on our behalf, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again. Uh, we read the story of uh, Peter at, at the centurion's house. So if you remember the story from Acts, and we'll talk about this actually later in the series, that uh, Peter is, is uh, asked to go by an angel to the centurion's house, which was very unusual because... The, uh, the, the founders of the New Testament church, they all had some racism going on, and uh, the centurion was not from their, their people, and so Peter's asked to go there, told to go there to this person who is not from his tribe, and Peter goes, and in Acts chapter 10, verse 39, we read this, and this is Peter talking. We are, talking about the disciples, we are witnesses of everything that God did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Uh, they killed Jesus by hanging him on the cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Now, this is Peter's message to, uh, to this man who is not from the, the Jewish people. So you might think, well, all this talk about Jesus being crucified and dying and rising again, that must have been just the message for uh, the Jewish people because they, they, they weren't aware of this, and but yet they were into the Messiah. But no, we read from Peter that Peter's first message to this man who is not from the Jewish people was the same message that uh, God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but, but by witnesses from God who had already been chosen. He ate with us, he drank with us, uh, and he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and dead, and that all the prophets in the Bible testify about him, and everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness. Peter's message is on a point. Again, Time and time again, it's about Jesus, God's work through Jesus, the fact that Jesus lived and taught and died and rose again and ascended. Uh, finally, in Acts, back in Acts chapter 3, we read again, this is Peter and John, now soon after the, the testimony that we read in Acts chapter 2 about this unified church, what are they talking about? It says that uh, Peter and, and, and uh, John were out and they meet a, a guy who has... Uh, is, is crippled, who is not able to, to walk. And the guy is talking to him, and Peter says, hey, silver or gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. And so in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. 
On taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to be sitting begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at this uh, as if it's by our own power or godliness that we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. See, they're on point every single time. It's back to Jesus. It's back to God's work in Jesus. You handed over to be killed. By the way, they didn't mince words. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he, had, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him it has completely healed him, as you can see. So they're invited in to talk to the religious leaders who are upset, the fact that they're out talking about this. And we read in Acts chapter 4, and verse 8, this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which you must be saved. I could go on and on and on. Um, I see that you get the point. And if you didn't, I'm just going to reiterate one more time. The New Testament church had a very, very concise and elegant message. God has done for us what we cannot do through the work of Jesus. And as we embrace his work, God is able to work in us to do what we can't do for ourselves. Elegant. And time and time again, every time that they're called before relig religious leaders or they're on the street, their message is plain and simple. Jesus is the one whose God has sent to save the world. Now, with this in mind, I, 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 I think back to this question that we're, we're asking ourselves. You know, what, what tied the church together? What unified them? And certainly, they're, they're, they're a radical uh, uh, embracement of economic equality was certainly uh, important. And certainly the fact that they spent a lot of quality time together was essential to them being tied together as a community. But it seems to me that this radical and precise theological purpose drove them to, became, to become the kind of community that God wanted them to be. They knew what they believed, and they believed very simply that God had worked through the man uh, Jesus. And that by his death, humanity has hope. Is it possible that the church uh, today, institutional church or even Avent Hope, has too many things that we consider the main thing? 
too many things that we consider the uh, main uh, thing. You know, I love a good Sabbath, and we talk about the Sabbaths quite often here because this is a Seventh-day Adventist community, community, but which day that you worship on cannot be the main thing of your faith. It just can't be, because n nowhere in the Bible is that the main thing. Um, what kind of worship service your community has cannot be the main thing. What you believe about the end of time, or what you believe about what happens when people die, or whatever various theological debates that go on, and there are literally hundreds of them. I mean, you know how many sects or denominations there are in, in Christendom? There are a lot of them, and they're usually rooted in some uh, theological element. And some of those are really important. I'm not saying things like the Sabbath and what you believe about elements are not important, but they cannot be the main thing, at least according to the New Testament church. The New Testament church had a very, very precise understanding, and it was this. Jesus came and died and rose again, and because of that, we have hope because the Holy Spirit then works in us as we embrace that truth, and then God can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That was their precise message, and time and time again, when they're called to talk about what they are about, that was the main thing. When you are uh, truly rooted in, in this hope, in this uh, message, uh, God is able to work in you as an individual and as a community in, in a powerful and profound uh, way. And to, to do the other elements that, that we see in the New Testament church, we read in 1 John chapter uh, three sixteen, the companion text to John chapter three sixteen. This is 1 John 3.16. We read these words. This is how we know what love is. Uh, Jesus Christ uh, laid down his life for us. There it is. There's that precise message again. Jesus Christ came and he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. In, in, this, in this text from, from the Apostle John, we get both of the elements coming together. We get the fact that they had a very precise message the New Testament church did, that Jesus has uh, laid down his life for us. And as you embrace that message, then it has practical implications for how you're going to operate as a believer. Once you recognize that God has done for you what you cannot do for your, yourself, that your eyes are open, the Spirit starts working in you, and then you recognize that a brother and sister who you, you, who you, you claim to be a family with, family in the, in the church sense, that they can't be hurting and in need, and you not, and you not care for them. There are practical implications for the belief that Jesus came and died for us. And as you embrace that great truth, God wants to work in you so that we will be a community of compassion and that we will start working toward economic equality for everyone and that we will want to spend quality time with each other. But all of this is rooted in that most essential element, that precise theological understanding that God has worked through Jesus. This is the main thing of the church. There are a lot of other things that we sometimes feel like are the main thing. Again, as Adventists, there are some things that we hold near and dear to us that we believe are absolutely essential, and they may be, 
but we cannot lose fact of the main thing. And the main thing is God's work in Jesus. We believe that through the grace of the Lord, God has sent Jesus. And because of that, we have hope to be saved and rescued and transformed. As we uh, continue this journey through the book of Acts, and we wrestle with some of the other elements that the New Testament church uh, wrestled with, and as we uh, continue to be a community here that is, uh, that is following the, in the footsteps of the New Testament church, may we be a community that is rooted in God's work in Jesus. And as we're rooted in his work, may he also show us how we can live in unity together and how we can overcome the things that separate us. May he do his good work in us today. Amen.